Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Rivals. People competing with another for the same objective or superiority in the same field of activity. And I'm building up now. I'm building up and building up and I never went out. I thought when I see him, I just want to kill him. I'm just going to, I just want to smash him. There's no walks of life where people go to work with two ambulances behind them. We know how dangerous it is. Both chasing the same goals and dreams. I remember feeling really sorry for him. I knew I was going to beat him. I think there was needle between the teams, but just through wanting to beat each other so badly. You know, there was a mutual respect. Each fighting against the other. I thought, wow, that looks like a broken man. I thought, wow, is it really that serious? When you're suffering and someone's better than you on the day and you're doing everything you possibly can to hold on to, to them and not let that gap get any bigger than a metre and you're praying for the end to come or you're praying for the next corner so you can rest a little bit. They're the hardest days. In this series, we bring together famous sporting rivals to hear a shared story from both sides. The triumph the tragedies, the victories, the near misses, the laughter, and the sorrow. This is Reunited on TalkSport. It's a dark, rainy night on the 22nd of November 2003 and the clock is ticking down in the Rugby Union World Cup final. Over 80,000 spectators, many dressed in English white, hold their collective breaths as the ball flies across a scene illuminated by a thousand camera flashes. And then, for the English at least, an eruption of pure joy as the ball dissects the posts. Again, Wilkinson in the place. Johnny Wilkinson, he's got it! For the first time in history, a Northern Hemisphere team won the Rugby World Cup as England overcame Australia after extra time in a gruelling, rain-sodden match. This is the story behind that final from both perspectives. This is Reunited with Lawrence Delalio and George Gregan on TalkSport. The 2003 World Cup was held in Australia, who also happened to be the defending champions. George Gregan captained the Wallabies. We were pretty excited by hosting the World Cup and obviously we're defending champions and no one at that stage um, had gone back to back, so we were highly motivated. 
And it's funny, Australia at that time, we'd, we'd hosted some incredible international events, the 2000 Olympics, and there was a real buzz in the air about hosting the Rugby World Cup in our backyard. Australia might have had home advantage, but England were the bookies' favourites. At the core of the team was a group of players who had been together for several years. The likes of Captain Martin Johnson, Matt Dawson, Johnny Wilkinson and Lawrence Delalio. The World Cup comes at, a, at an interesting time for the Northern Hemisphere rugby player because you've had your season, you've had your summer tour to Australia, been down under. We come back, we've had a few weeks rest and then we're into a, a real tough camp, World Cup camp. And it was probably the hardest training camp I've ever been involved in. And I'm sure all the players would tell you this. So we went there absolutely at the peak of our f physical powers. Uh, mentally, physically, we were in wonderful condition. We, I think Clive Woodward described it as the best prepared World Cup squad ever. And he wasn't lying. George Gregan. We knew the best team in the world going into that World Cup was England. Like they'd been undefeated. They were playing really well. And in June, they came over uh, and they beat New Zealand. They had two players off the field at one stage in Wellington and found a way to win that game in really tough conditions. There goes the siren. There goes Greenwood into touch. And there is history. England have won in New Zealand. A hundred years of all-black rugby and now add to the famous victory of 1973-2003. Showed that they had you know, a championship winning team and showed you what Martin Johnson, that group could do away from home. Then they they followed that up with a really, probably the best the best performance I'd played against an English team was the following week in June uh, in Melbourne. And they, they, they put us to the sword really. Uh, and that's when we realized, hang on, they put a stake in the sand saying, hey, we're the, we're the team to beat in the Rugby World Cup. The Rugby Union World Cup is a seven week affair that starts with a pool phase. For England and Australia, the aim was to top the pool, which would result in theory at least with an easier path in the later stages. The opening match saw Australia overcome Argentina. George Gregan. Yeah, I remember it vividly. Like, again, it was another warm match, um, as you'd expect at that time of the year in Oz. But they're always a dangerous team, Argentina. So it was a really good start for us. It wasn't, certainly wasn't perfect, but it's just nice to, to get that first game out of the way. You're, you're playing at home, you're out at Sydney, you're out at uh, Stadium Australia, and uh, you know, it was a good way to start, and it was something to work off. England demolished Georgia in their opening game while Australia followed up the win over Argentina with a comfortable victory over Romania. However, England's second pool game was an altogether different proposition. Former world champions, South Africa. And as Lawrence Delalio explains, there was bad blood between the teams. I don't know if people remember, but we played them in the autumn before the World Cup in 2002. And it was that infamous game where there was a lot of penalties given away, they had a man sent off for a late tackle on Johnny Wilkinson. They'd sort of resorted to pretty much all-out thuggery, really, and they got th thumped by 50 points by us. And as we walked off the pitch at Twickenham, all they kept mumbling was, see you in Perth. So we went, yeah, OK, well, we'll see you in Perth. Um, we look forward to it. What people don't know is that we that game was played on an Aussie rules pitch. It's called the Subiaco Oval. Um, we don't play rugby on Aussie rules pitches, but they're very different. And Clive Woodward had insisted on taking us to Perth at the end of the summer of 2003, after we'd just beaten Australia in Melbourne, and we all wanted to go home to our families. And he said, why are we, you know, we're like, why are we going to Perth? He said, because that's where we're playing South Africa in a few months' time. And he said, you guys have never been to the stadium. You've never played on an Aussie rules pitch. You don't know what the changing room looks like. You don't know. And he said, I don't want that to be the case. You know, we can't have, uh, you know, any butts in this tournament. So we went to the changing room. And we had a look around the pitch. And do you know what? It was a really, really important moment because 
lo and behold, five months later, we're there, we're in the Subiaco over. We're all getting changed to play against South Africa, and of course, we're we're all feeling quite familiar with the territory. And it was always going to be about that game, and it it was a scrappy affair. What you know wasn't wasn't great. Kieran Bracken put a bit of pressure on. Lewis Moody got the charge down, and, and Will Greenwood scored a try. Charge down wonderfully. This could be the breakthrough. That was Lewis Moody who charged it down, and the try. Both sides had played 2-1-2. In the third match, Australia thumped Namibia by a cricket score, while England faced Samoa. And it's fair to say, things didn't go to plan. I think the thing that you have to remember is that when you're the number one side in the world, it's not often as an Englishman you can say that, but when you are, everyone's going to play their best game against you because it's one thing being the hunter, but when you're the hunted, in other words, you know, when you're already at the top, and you've got the other teams, you're there to be shot at. They were energised, they were inspired by the crowd. We knew that, that they wanted to make the game as fast and loose as possible, and we played to their hands, you know, even though we talked about it beforehand. All of a sudden, even the most simple things like kicking the ball from in front of the post, Johnny Wilkinson <laughs> missed the kick, you know. So it was definitely not going according to plan, and we had to make a few tweaks and a few adjustments. But in, in any game, you're not just going to, roll over and batter the opposition even though people think you are but just because you have done in the past maybe so uh, we had to work very hard and we resorted to being a little bit boring you know we kicked the ball and drove the line outs occasionally but it's all about winning the match doesn't matter by how many points after a scare England won 35-22 the final pool game saw England top the group after smashing Uruguay but for Australia it would come down to a winner takes all showdown with Ireland. I still remember it a bit like yesterday. It was a pretty special week. They haven't forgotten it in Melbourne. That was like the spring carnival weekend. It was Derby Day. There was the International Aussie Rules game on the Friday night and then we played after Derby Day. So I think they ran out of Guinness by about lunchtime on, on game day and they ran out of beer at the stadium by half by half time. Yeah, it was fierce and it was furious and it was physical. <laughs> Not that you ever played Ireland. And it wasn't any of those, but World Cup brings another edge to it. Both teams yeah, knew what was at stake in terms of the pool. It wasn't in terms of the tournament, but the pool was really, really important. Keith Wood was on fire. Drico scored a try at the death. Yes, O'Driscoll! Did he get it down? Yes. I call it yes. He is a magician if he did. I think we won by a point, and, and that was important to, to go through that sort of really hard test match rugby. It, it's playoff rugby. There's a huge intensity, but we found a way to win it. Was it perfect? Was it pretty? Far from it, but we found a way. I still remember talking to the players. When it got tight, I think when Druko scored in the corner, a few of our guys, like they dropped their heads, like a lot of Aussie sporting teams, but particularly in that period, like we were big on body language, and I wasn't very happy with guys dropping their heads. And so I kind of didn't on the field. We got through the match, but I sort of reminded the guys, we don't drop our heads, strong body language always. Don't give the opportunity for the opposition to think you beat. So it was a really good test match in that regard. Again, they're the sort of things, if you're going to progress in a World Cup, you need to get through and you need to grow. Both England and Australia topped their groups with three wins from three. Next up were the quarterfinals. Australia overcame Scotland 33-16. But the scoreline didn't reflect the match. George Gregan. There was a field goal kick from the, the end of freaking Brisbane. <laughs> it was it was like on Spring Street, I don't know where it was, but it came from a long way away to draw it. So they went in quite buoyant, I think, nine all. Um, and maybe there's an upset on. And I, I can remember sort of sharing 
um, and I will we a lot of the players who've been part of that 95 World Cup campaign just wanted to remind the group that hang on a minute don't don't get ahead don't count your chickens so to speak because although everyone thinks Scotland aren't a chance of winning they've got a PB in them and you know maybe they are packed their bags and ready to go home but they're going to give absolutely everything they can and you know what if they're in the fight why not win it? And and that's what they were at half time. So th- there's two ways to go there. You can either say, oh, what the hell's going on? They shouldn't be near us. Or you say, okay, they're in the fight. Okay, we're just going to have to have a much better 40 minutes and we're just going to have to persevere and, and stay together. And that's what we did in that second half, which was pleasing. So we've definitely grown from the team which played Ireland in Melbourne to that quarterfinal because it wasn't perfect. As I said, <laughs> nothing's ever really perfect in rugby, but we still had room for improvement, which was pleasing and we were still winning. England's opponents in the quarterfinal were Wales. Many in the press expected a comfortable England win for the reigning Grand Slam champions. But Lawrence Delalio was more wary of the Welsh. What people read in the press and what people, what we think in our own minds is very different. And I think, again, I don't know if people will remember this, but the last game of Wales's group stage, the pool matches, was against New Zealand. New Zealand were winning comfortably and then Wales came back into the game and, and they very nearly won that match. And we were just leaving the stadium as we were watching the Wales-New Zealand game and Wales were giving them a really good run for their money. And we thought to ourselves, hold on a sec, this is going to be a very, very tough game. Take nothing away from Wales, but we we did not help them by playing some appalling rugby in the first half and almost playing into their hands a little bit and kicking so badly, kicking the ball straight down their throat to their back three, making mistakes. And we were against a worthy opponent. And I remember walking down the tunnel at half time, we were losing, and I was thinking, hmm, this is not going well. I wonder which country I might exile myself to if we lose to Wales, because I certainly won't be going back to England, that's for sure. And uh, I was walking down the tunnel with Will Greenwood, and this Welsh supporter was above us, and he was just giving us a torrent of abuse, which I can't repeat on air, but uh, it it wasn't pleasant. But he did make me laugh, because he he called Will Greenwood Rodney Trotter (laughs) from Only Fools and Horses, which... um, you know, when you look at lookalikes, he had a point. Uh, so, so he made, uh, even in even though it wasn't a laughing matter because we were losing to Wales and we were staring down the barrel, we looked at each other and we both sort of cracked up laughing. And we got in the changing room and Clive Wilbur was clearly not laughing at all. There was a lot of panic written across his face. But we were calm as a group. Just a few tweaks needed to be made, which were made. You know, Johnny was not having a good game. And listen, he's one of the greatest players that's ever put on an England shirt. But when you're not having a good game, you need a bit of help out there. And the first thing he did was bring Mike Cat on, which just gave him that experience. The first thing Mike Cat did was kick the ball down the pitch and said, this is where we're going to play the game, down in their half. The second half, as much as we were panicking, in the first half, there was a calmness that resumed itself. We got ourselves in front. We started, there was a familiar pattern. The Jason Robinson break and the Will Green we tried just put us... In, in command of the game. What a burst by Robinson! He has Greenwood outside! England eventually overcame Wales, but it was a close-run thing. In the aftermatch post-mortem, the players complained they were tired and lacked sharpness, resulting in a frank conversation with coach Clive Woodward. The kickoff times for the World Cup were late at night, and yet we were training in the Brisbane heat at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now... That doesn't make sense to me. It uh, didn't make sense to anyone, but we didn't really see that as a problem at the time. But what was clear after the Wales game was that 
you know, if, if we're going to go and win this competition, we just need to chill out and just stop killing ourselves here. After we beat Wales, there's a complete mindset shift, you know, and we said, one, we don't need to train as hard. Two, let's not train at three o'clock in the afternoon when it's like roasting. Uh, let's train the same time as we're going to kick off. And, uh, and there was just a calmness that descended on the squad. Still to come on Reunited on TalkSport. I didn't like these recovery sessions involved trying to get on a surfboard in the uh, ocean. I wanted to play in a World Cup final, not be a statistic on a shark attack. Walking in the other direction was Johnny Wilkinson in, in full disguise. I thought to myself, God, poor guy, he's, he's getting ready for the final and he just looks so intense. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Reunited on TalkSport. And in this episode, we're looking back at the 2003 Rugby Union World Cup in the company of Lawrence Delalio and George Gregan. Australia and England had successfully negotiated themselves into the semi-finals, where they would both face well-known foes. England would play France, but first Australia were up against old rivals New Zealand. George Gregan. Yeah, hot season New Zealand, is it? <laughs> it's... It's it's a it's a big one. I know Austra- the Ashes is big, isn't it? Like in cricket, um, well, Australia playing England in rugby, like Australia playing England in any sport's big, but it, it's sort of the big brother, little brother, and they're probably the big brother at the moment. But like Aussies always like to think of themselves in many ways, which is a bit silly, and and, and they like just to square them up, thinking Aussies are a little bit big-headed and arrogant and all that kind of stuff. There's always a nice bit of banter, but both countries like to beat each other, um, particularly in rugby. The All Blacks have got a really proud proud tradition wherever they've played but um, you know they they like to beat Aussies and vice versa. New Zealand had the upper hand when it came to recent matches but the Aussies came out of the blocks flying and their intensity shocked the All Blacks. If you watch the the kickoff of that game I don't think we allowed them to touch the ball for two minutes. Did we move the ball too far? We probably moved it about 40 or 50 metres down the field but they didn't get a touch on it but they were blowing really hard and had to make all this defence, had to make a lot of tackles and it was like, hang on, what's going on? You could see it within that all-black team, they're going, hang on, this is a different team and this is going to be a different night and it played out that way. Arguably the key moment came when Sterling Mortlock ran nearly the length of the field for an interception try. 
think um, that was just a byproduct of a lot of pressure and that, that they had a chance to attack. And we sort of, uh, Carlos was a, a wonderful player, but Carlos was always going to go for the big play. It's New Zealand in possession. And Sterlow made a, it's a positive risk, but he, he was in that position and, and he took it. Spencer again. Intercepted. Mortlock. They are going to make hard work of it. Rokotoko's chasing, but he can give up. Mortlock gets the first try. Australia were in the final, thanks not only to that try, but a wonderful kicking performance from Elton Flatley, a player who was finding his form at exactly the right time. Two out of two for Elton Flatley. The All Blacks are out of sorts. It's Australia in the driver's seat. The Wallabies' opponents in the 2003 final would be either France or England, who played in the second semi-final. Lawrence Delalio. It was a very tough game against France, and it always is. We've got a long history of being at war with each other so uh, and we don't particularly like each other and the feeling is totally mutual and I say that as a man who's married into a French family uh, <laughs> but France had been magnificent throughout the tournament and that was probably their undoing really they'd been so good they demolished a lot of the sides that they played against their front row were looking ominously strong and powerful their back row you know Serge Betson Harry Nordeke and Olivier Mann were almost sort of held as the as the best back row in the tournament which kind of got up our uh, got our goats up a little bit and uh, even to the point where the rest of our teammates were ribbing myself Neil Back and Richard Hill saying you know come on guys you know you've got a point to prove here and equally you know we were in turn ribbing our own front row saying have you have you seen what they're saying about this French front row? It's the best front row in the history of, you know. So we knew as a pack that we were going into this as uh, with potential question marks over us, you know. Would we stand up to the power of the French pack? You know, would our back row have the running game to, to, to take on the all-conquering, you know, French back row? So that was probably a really good position for us to be in because, as you know, the English are always at their strongest and at their most um, threatening when their backs are against a wall. And... And that's how we felt going into the game. We said to ourselves, they may have played some brilliant rugby, but no one's put them under any pressure. Uh, and we knew that when the French are under pressure, um, they don't like it and they crack. We were very confident in understanding how to beat the French. And uh, when the conditions deteriorated, we knew it was going to be a real arm wrestle. It was a game about inches. We conceded the first try. Uh, Richard Hill, who hadn't played in any of the games in, in the lead-up to that French game, you know, he'd been a bit of a food bill, if I'm honest, right, you know, around the around the hotel room. But he's such a quality player that he came straight back into the team. There was no question of him starting the the, the, the game. He just misread the line out and Serge Betson scored the first try and came under the post, put his hand up, said, guys, sorry, that was my fault. Let's just move on. Betson held it brilliantly. Serge Betson! And after that, we, we never really looked back. We chipped away at them. You know, in those conditions, it wasn't going to be about scoring tries. It was um, just about chipping away and, and Johnny Wilkinson, every time he, he got within range and we got a penalty, you know, he just slotted it over and he was magnificent on the day and ultimately it was a pretty comfortable victory in the end. But he really has to nail this one for his side just to reward all of England's pressure in this second half. Affirmative. England were in the World Cup final, but for Lawrence Delalio, this was always in the script. I remember phoning my mum and dad about a month before we departed for Australia. And I said to them, are you, you going to come out to Australia? And they said, oh, we said we were going to talk about this. She said, we, we can't really afford to. And I said, oh, no, no, you've got to come. I said, I'll pay for it. I'll sort it all out. I said, I, I think we're going to win this, you know. And she said, really? I said, yeah, no, I think we're going to win it. 
England would face Australia in the 2003 Rugby Union World Cup final in Sydney. George Gregan would captain the host nation. Lawrence Delalio would be part of an England side who had conquered all in the previous few years. To find out how the final panned out from both perspectives, it's time to reunite these two rugby legends. The lead-up to a World Cup final is huge. We were based up in Coffs Harbour, so what that enabled us to do was sort of beat a lot of that hype. And that international media came, I think it may have been on the Wednesday. I think that was the big media day. But uh, we had a few photos taken of the team when we did our recovery session. I didn't like these recovery sessions involved trying to get on a surfboard in the uh, ocean. And if you're ever surfing around Australia, the eastern most part of Australia has got a lot of sharks. So <laughs> I wanted to play in a World Cup final, not be statistic on a shark attack. So I pretty much stayed out of the water as much as I could and observed. Yeah, it was very relaxed, wasn't it, in the uh, in that week? And I think that was part of the battle for us is when you're preparing for effectively the biggest game of your life and you're just trying to treat it as a as another test match, you know, but it's not. It's the World Cup final. Outside the hotel is like this party atmosphere, holiday atmosphere, lots of fans, but there's some serious business to be had at the end of the week. And I think that's probably where the experience counts. I think, you know, for me, it wasn't my first game for England. It was the final was my 65th cap. And, and for many of the team, as the Australian press kept telling us, we were we were pretty old. Um, so that experience really helped in the, in the preparations because there's not a lot that's going to make you a better rugby player between Monday and Saturday of, of a World Cup final week. It's just really in the mind and just trying to relax and prepare for the game and and not overthink it too much and just stay calm and, and do the normal things that you do. But not every England player was as relaxed as Lawrence Delalio. Johnny Wilkinson, you know, bless him, you felt like he had the world on his shoulders because he probably did, you know, playing 5-8 for England and... He was just at a different stage in his international career, different stage in his career. He had a lot of pressure. And I remember walking down the beach with my wife, not far from Manly, we said, come on, let's go out for lunch and just to you know, have a bit of rest. And walking in the other direction was Johnny Wilkinson in, in full disguise. I mean, literally, he had pretty much a balaclava on and you wouldn't have recognised it was him because he just didn't want to be seen, didn't want to be noticed by anyone. And uh, I thought to myself, God, poor guy, he's, he's getting ready for the final and he just looks so intense and I almost felt for him, really, because uh, he had a, he obviously felt the, the, the weight of expectation on his shoulders. But, um, hey, he came through in the end. There's the result, we're underway. The World Cup Final, 2003. Under a leaden sky with weather more akin to Stockport than Sydney, the 2003 Rugby Union World Cup final got underway. And it was the home side who were soon in the ascendancy, George Gregan. We'd actually gone in with a game plan of, um, look, we had to play the conditions, but when we had the ball in hand, we really wanted to retain it um, as much as we could. But also in that situation, Lottie Takuri, he'd come over from rugby league along with Matt Rogers and Wendell Saylor. And, and Lottie at that stage was one of the best aerial wingers in rugby league. Um, so, you know, you do the cross kick and he was, he was fantastic at catching that and scoring. So he's a big guy. I think he's about 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, six, he's, he's a big human being. And, um, and he was up against Jason Robinson. So there was obviously a mismatch in the air for an aerial contest. So we did, we did rehearse that. And, you know, first scrum ball comes out. Stevie does the cross kick, lands it right on the... It's perfect execution. It's a perfect start. Australia still have it. Mortlock's out wide. Here comes Takiri. He's only got to take it. Lottie! Australia! Unbelievable try by Lottie Takiri to start the match. 
Dakiri just too big and strong over Robinson. No panic from our point of view. It's not the first time in our lives we've been behind. Not the first time in the tournament. You've just got to build yourself into the game. We probably had a few tweaks to our strategy going into that match. Um, there's no doubt that when they've got world-class halfbacks like George and Stephen Larkham, you, we've got to put them under as much pressure as we could. So we wanted to make sure that, that George had to dig for as many uh, ruck balls as possible and didn't have perhaps the, the platform just to sweep the ball away. And certainly, similar to Johnny Wilkinson, Stephen Larkham was, for, for us, was probably their key man, their danger man. We had to make sure that we kept him as busy as possible uh, in the nicest possible way. We wanted to make sure that, uh, if, that he was battered and bruised, so to speak. Not, not as in targeting him, but specifically. But if he, if he had to go on and off the field or the physio kept coming on and off you know, to give him some treatment, then that would be ideal for us because he's such a quality player. What Lowell was saying about uh, Stephen Larkin, we were no different with Johnny Wilkinson. It's just what you do. They're the decision makers. And, and we knew he had a sore shoulder, like he's, he carried a shoulder for a long time. So we, and it's, it's not saying you're a nasty, but you're going to target someone. And we wanted to target that right shoulder. And this doesn't get probably spoken enough about Johnny, how tough he is. He's properly tough. We know about his mental skills in terms of being able to like, just stay in the fight and win his team's championships and all that kind of stuff. But his physical and mental toughness when he was – like, he, he was down for a long period of time. We thought he was off with his shoulder because he'd had some problems with it, his neck and a stinger. But he found a way, shrugged it off and stayed on the field. Um, and that was in the first half. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't looking good for him at that stage. Not that it was something that uh, you look back on and say, well, if he was off the field, it was like, you know what, that guy's properly tough. Despite the Aussies targeting Johnny Wilkinson, he stayed on the pitch and slotted home three penalties to give England the lead. All teams talk about discipline, but it becomes like it's discipline with capital letters and all sorts of sort of uh, <laughs> apostrophes, all sorts of things when you're playing Johnny because he could kick it from 50, 50 plus on all angles. So you just knew that you just had to be super disciplined in, in your in your 15, even on just on their side, because if you weren't, he's going to hurt you. And, and I must admit, which... He kicked some great pressure goals. We had a couple of chances where it was probably just on the end of uh, Elton Flatley's range in terms of those penalty goals because they kicked a couple afterwards. And then uh, he missed just a couple of kicks in that first half, not through accuracy, it was just on the end of his range. So it, it becomes a real weapon when you can kick them from 50-plus, which Johnny Wilkinson did. As George quite rightly says, when you've got a, someone like Johnny Wilkinson who can kick the ball from your own 10-metre line, there is no need to panic because uh, the minute you get a penalty, that is an option. Not always the, the one you're going to take, but it is an option. And uh, he certainly uh, delivered on the night. Looks good. England have their nose in front. Thanks to the boot of Johnny Wilkinson, England led 9-5 as the first half was coming to an end. And then England at last made a significant breakthrough. I got on the outside shoulder, I think, of, of one of the Australian players. And for the first time, and there wasn't many opportunities to offload the ball in, in those conditions. You know, you're, you're constantly worried about the tackler dislodging the ball. So I was able to get on the outside shoulder. I heard Johnny Wilkinson calling on the inside. So I knew instinctively he was there. I didn't have time to look, but I heard him. It, it was one of the few opportunities in that first half where we got a little bit of space. Managed to get the ball out of my hands, which was unusual for me. Just a, <laughs> Usually I'm a bit of a crowbar, you know, they may be... Uh, Maybe when the Aussies have been uh, have been looking at me on video, they thought oh, he, he tucks the ball under his arm, doesn't pass very much. So maybe I surprised them. I don't know. Certainly surprised. <laughs> certainly surprised myself. That's for sure. It was um, a beautifully weighted pass, lol. <laughs> Come on, mate. <laughs> so I gave it to Johnny, and 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 again, what unlocks defenses quite often is is a is an inside outside ball because you pull the defence one way and then very quickly send them the other. And 
that's probably why Johnny looked outside to one of the fastest players in, in the world at the time and, you know, one of the best finishers. I mean, the guy on the inside, Ben Cohen, wasn't a bad finisher himself, but as I said, it's that inside and then back outside again and we just got ourselves right back in the game. Here's Delalio, the big man with a lovely pass to Wilkinson and Robinson! They won't catch him! Jason Robinson! Fantastic work by Delalio and Vision. And then Johnny Wilkinson looked outside for his speed man in Robinson, but he could have actually thrown it on the inside because he had two more and look at the year, you beauty. England took a 14-5 lead, but it should have been even more. Minutes before Jason Robinson crossed the line, England had a wonderful opportunity to score. But with the try line begging, Ben Kay fumbled the ball and the chance went to miss. The infamous Ben Kay, you know, dropping the ball over just short of the line, you know, that was a real turning point for both sides yeah. because we had real momentum in the game. And if we score that try and convert it, which would have been likely, uh, it's a completely different cup final. I remember the moment that that happened. You know, you're obviously not going to not going to scream and shout at Ben Kane. You know, he doesn't need that. He just needs someone to put his arm around him, <laughs> which, uh, which is exactly what happened. But I do remember that being a key moment because we've been so dominant in that last 10 minutes of the first half. And I remember going down the tunnel thinking we should be a lot further ahead. We realised, I think it should have been probably 21-9. Worst case, 19-9, shouldn't it, at half mm. at half time? And that's a big big gap in those conditions so we went in and we realized we dodged a bullet but it's 14-5 we're down nine points and we just realized we're gonna have to grind it out we're just gonna have to play make some adjustments get down in that part of the field and if we if we can't score by getting the ball over the line then we're just going to build pressure and, and give ourselves a chance to claw back still to come on reunited with Lawrence Delalio and George Gregan on talk sport and we were getting these scrum penalties and, and Flats was knocking over these penalties and getting closer and closer, so it's a double frustration. Well, I can talk about it from my perspective because I gave the penalty away. <laughs> <laughs> this is Reunited on Talk Sport, and we're looking back at the Rugby Union World Cup of 2003 in the company of England's Lawrence Delalio and Australia's George Gregan. The big man with a lovely pass to Wilkinson and Robinson! They won't catch him! Jason Robinson! Thanks to a try from Jason Robinson in the final minutes of the first half, England had a nine-point lead as the teams headed for the changing rooms at half-time. Lawrence Delalio. I think every changing room is different. Certainly for the first couple of minutes, no one's doing any talking. You're doing a lot of breathing very heavily. In those conditions, it was probably a slower test match than, than we were all used to. But even so, you're still uh, sucking in oxygen at quite a rate of knots. If anyone can still talk in the first couple of minutes of half-time, then they've, <laughs> they've clearly not been working hard enough. <laughs> so I think it's quite a quiet sort of place, reflective, you know, and, and it's interesting instinctively, and George will know this as well, as you walk down the tunnel, you, you've just dissected that half in about 30 seconds and you know exactly, as, as a leader of the group, what needs to be said and done. You just probably just need to let everyone get their breath back because half-time is something I think you learn over the years. You know, you can waste a lot of energy talking and actually the concentration levels of, of elite sportsmen, two or three points maximum is all you need to make um, to get your point across. You know, you could talk and talk for 10 minutes and about 10% um, of it will go in. So uh, it's about two or three things that you need to just tweak or or modify and uh, and that's kind of it. It's very similar, I think. Well, to to what ours was, we we were pretty. We had a, a routine: your backs, your forwards, take your jerseys off, you refuel, 
get your breath back before anything gets spoken. And then the coaches would ask the leaders in the forwards, they'd ask the leaders in the backs what they thought. The coach might say something, like Eddie may have said, but then the final word was always with, with in our change, I'd just bring it all in. And it's never, exactly, mate, it's never more than two or three points. You, you can't you can't digest more than that. Having said that, you you know, you talk about things at half-time and then completely the opposite happens. I mean, we talk... We talk, we talk <laughs> it's, it's not a game of... You we, can't prescribe it, can you? Like, we, who knows? We talked clearly about being 14-5 ahead and, you know, we need the first score of the second half to, to bury this contest. And lo and behold, we probably played our worst 40 minutes of rugby in the, in the whole tournament. We weren't helped at all by uh, our insistence <laughs> on arguing with the referee, you know, um, which which we did on, on a numerous occasions. So we started to allow him to get on our back as well. And that became a bit of a factor as the game started to unwind. And George and I always found it easier if we refereed normally. But um, yes, it, that's <laughs> it. The man in the middle of that official suit just complicated things. <laughs> yeah. The man in the official suit was referee Andre Watson of South Africa. To many observers, England were dominant in the scrum and continually looked to use that advantage. But the referee saw things differently, and George Gregan can remember England getting frustrated and agitated as Watson continued to penalise them. Is it scrum time? Always at scrum time, because um, there's probably a few penalties. They th- and, and you know what? They've probably got a good point. And I think every every front rower in the world ha- could say, like, if you took the referee out, we'd be able to self-police it. But we, we got the rub of the green in terms of some of these scrums going down. I think there's a, one of the famous quotes, I'll put my house on it, yeah. <laughs> that it was yeah. <laughs> that it was them. Well, I think so the fr- I think I think... there's some great banter. I can't yeah. remember it verbatim, but, you know, they were getting frustrated because they would have thought that they had the wood on us. Yeah. Um, and we were getting these scrum penalties and, and Flats was knocking over these penalties and getting closer and closer. So it's a double frustration from an English perspective. I think that the scrum is what makes rugby unique it's a talking point for everyone it's such a technical aspect of the game um, when decisions go for or against you a lot of guys other than the people who technically really understand what's going on in the front row they couldn't tell you why the decision went for or against you they really couldn't slowly but surely australia thanks to the imperious kicking of elton flatley moved ever closer to england while the men in white just couldn't get on the scoreboard with a minute to go england were leading 14 11 until once again the referee blew his whistle to signal a penalty to Australia. Big clean out from Sailor. Penalty to the Wallabies. Here we see Lawrence Delalio, number eight, not staying behind the last feet when the rocket formed. He's going, yep, probably fair call, sir. Well, I can talk about it from my perspective because I gave the penalty away. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, oh. Oh, what have I done? What have I done? You know what I mean? Because I knew he'd kick it. I mean, he he just had he he did brilliantly well. And actually, you know, in hindsight, it's easy for me to say this. I'm I'm delighted he did kick it because, you know, what you want in sport and in the greatest of rivalries, which England and Australia do have, is you want a team to go out and win the game. You don't want someone yeah. to lose the game. If he'd have missed that kick and we'd have gone on and won, everyone would have perhaps looked back and said, well. Elton Flatley lost Australia in the World Cup final. I was obviously very disappointed to give the penalty away, which clearly wasn't a penalty. I remember sort of pulling a slightly sort of De Niro-like face as if to say... Puzzled well, what, face. Puzzled, what can you do? You know, <laughs> what, what, are you really? Are you sure? Uh, and we kind We've of all been there with Andre. It's a penalty. Flatley can level the scores and force the game into extra time. The fate of England and Australia hanging on this kick. It's extra time, 14 all. The full-time whistle went with the teams tied at 14 all. 
England hadn't scored a single point in the second half. So did the Aussies have the momentum going into extra time? Former Australian captain, George Gregan. Oh, a little bit, but like a, it's full time. So we, and we'd, we had actually, we'd rehearsed and we'd gone through the scenarios. If you went into extra time, and then if it was double extra time, we, were, we already knew who our five kickers were for the field goal contest, so to speak, if it, <laughs> if it got down to that. I remember from our perspective, we were very calm. There's no doubt we were one of the fittest teams in the world at that time. Um, we hadn't, I think we'd only made one substitution at that point. Australia had made a few already, probably because of the pressure we'd exerted. So Clive clearly didn't see any reason to make wholesale changes. So we knew we still had some, some shots to fire from the, from the bench, which is quite important. In extra time, England delivered the first blow, another Wilkinson penalty. It was uh, on the, on the left-hand side. It was over 45 metres out, which on the angle makes it, uh, mm. I believe, as a kicker, makes it even harder. And uh, it was a phenomenal kick. It, it certainly gave us a lift as a group um, just to see that one dip over the crossbar and flags go up. And we were back to that familiar pattern again. So we play out the next 20 minutes of extra time. If it's still level, then it becomes sudden death. Wilkinson has got the distance. Unbelievable! 17-14, Johnny Wilkinson, all of 50 metres, four from five for him. And then it becomes a bit of a, a chess match, really, because especially the way the referee was refereeing the contest, not just for us, for both sides, you know, yeah. you're not quite sure what's, what you're going to get from Andre. So it was all about field position, you know, for whatever we do, do not get caught in your own half. So you tend to see a lot more kicking in the game. Uh, Australia don't kick the ball anywhere near as much as they did in that final. And, and we obviously did kick the ball because we had a very good kickers in the team. We were becoming risk-averse, both sides, because you didn't want to get yeah. caught in your own 22 or in your own half, and it just became a little bit of a, a chess match and tit-for-tat, so to speak. Yeah, it's a good point, Lol, isn't it? Because when you're in that scenario and you, you, you just don't want to give a, a soft penalty away and you, you don't know how the man in the middle is going to react, everyone became a little bit more passive, like everyone was climbing into it prior to that but like I think there was that moment hang on I don't want to push the envelope here like you'd rather side on caution rather than being a little bit too risky and that was that was definitely the feeling out there it was like get down play in their half like back their defense maybe let's potentially force an error and then hey maybe we can then hold on to the ball for a period of time and maybe force a penalty or maybe get a score the chess match continued until history seemed to repeat itself with England fans desperately looking at the clock, Australia equalised with another last gasp Elton Flowey penalty. And Australia now with a penalty attempt. Straight as a die. 17-0. But while Flatley was lining up his kick, the England captain Martin Johnson was hatching a plan. Lawrence Delalio takes up the story. We're under the post and, we're, and John was giving a few orders away and we were chatting about what we were going to do. There's no way Australia are going to run it back. If we kick it long, mm. they're just going to kick it out because uh, they're going to bat themselves to get themselves back to the halfway line. So we had Lewis Moody on the field, Mad Dog Moody. And the one, <laughs> the one thing he can do is run uh, and he will run and run and run. So we just said to him, look, if, if we kick it long, let's kick it to, to Matt Rogers because he's the less experienced kicker out of everyone in their team. He's a, he's a rugby leaguey, so... Uh, He's, he's used to running the ball rather than kicking. Mm. Um, so we're going to kick it to him. We're going to kick it to his wrong side. 
and Mad Dog, you're going to run as fast as you can from the halfway line and you're going to put as much pressure on him as possible. And we're going to narrow the angle on that so that he doesn't have much time to kick the ball out. And that's exactly what we did. So instead of having a, a line out on the halfway line, I think we might have just been inside the Australian half, um, which I know is, yeah, only, yeah, well. is only inches, but it makes, makes a big difference. What followed will go down in English sporting history. We threw the ball to the back. And actually, it, it almost hit Lewis Moody in, you know, in the midrift. Uh, it was such a, such a low throw. They've gone long again. This time it works. Then Dawes showed great vision, stole a few metres, and then he's in the rain. And Dawson suddenly gets away. Matt just brought us that little bit of extra space and time, which, which we needed to get within drop goal range. And then again, you know, the big figure of Martin Johnson just coming in there and saying, you know, we just need a couple more yards to trundle it on a bit. Martin Johnson. Staying composed here. Well, I remember, it's like yesterday, like you're calling it, like here it comes, here it comes, get on his right foot, like it was Georgie, I think Phil War. I'm on his left foot, like we're just coming, here it comes, here it comes. Again, Wilkinson in the place. Yeah, the whole Australian back row, who were an incredible unit as a group, just on their toes, ready to try and put the pressure on him, uh, as was George. We, we knew that we'd given ourselves enough space and time to create that opportunity for John. Australia come back. And it was on his right boot, and I was on his, obviously on the other side trying to get it on his left boot, and he just caught it. I'm thinking, here he goes, going to dive, what am I going to do? Johnny Wilkinson, he's got it! It's over! I remember when the drop goal went over, you saw that everyone sort of celebrates for it. For a split second, and then you realise actually there's still 30 seconds to go or 45 seconds to go, and, and uh, you know we've all been involved in, in games where we've lost with the last play of the match. So uh, <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's not a nice feeling, trust me. It'd be even worse in a World Cup final. So we're kind of running back into position, and I'm sure there was more panic off the pitch than there was on it. There was instructions and things being fired across. You know, go stand here, do this, do that. And actually, and the actually, classic one, the classic one, catch the kick. Yeah, ca- yeah, yeah, catch, catch <laughs> like it. Like intentionally try to drop it. Tackle, tackle you know, and, and actually, you know, things went not as planned. You know, we had a prop standing in the, in the, in the place where the second row was supposed to be standing and uh, Trevor Woodman ended up, you know, the smallest guy on the field at the time um, and ended up catching the kickoff miraculously. And uh, as I said, once he caught that, I think then we could be calm because we knew that uh, it was pretty much done. The player of the tournament, Johnny Wilkinson, has snatched it away from the Wallabies. Is this it? And England has joined Sir Alf Ramsey's Immortals of 1966. A dramatic, heart-stopping victory for England in extra time. England were world champions for the first time. But for George Gregan and Lawrence Delalio, the final whistle brought contrasting emotions. Yeah, everyone was gutted, like, but everyone was emotionally, physically just spent. We'd given everything, heart and soul, and you, you, we'd left everything on the pitch. And that's all you can ask of your team, to be fair, like, in a, particularly in a World Cup final. They beat us in our own backyard, and we can be proud of the effort. It was something along those lines. And we just we, we enjoyed each other's company, had a few beers, took a while to get, get showered and changed. And it's funny, I'll, I'll, I haven't shared this with many people, but we played... In 2001, the Lions series, similar, same same arena, game three. See, Jono's captain of the Lions. And um, I'm, I'm coming out of the change room after the final 
and I think he's just probably finished his presser. We bump into each other, and it was almost like deja vu from two years ago. I said, mate, you're in the winning change room this time. How's it feel? <laughs> he had a big smile on his face. Winning the World Cup final, it felt like it was climbing Everest. Just to be in that changing room, lots of different emotions, some guys crying, some guys laughing, some guys just doing nothing because they're just exhausted. It was just about opening a bottle of beer and just looking at each other and just saying, well done, mate, you know, we've, we've delivered on our promise. And uh, I think that's what made it special because I knew that for those five or ten minutes when we were on our own as a group, and it wasn't just about the team, it was about the, the team behind the team, if you like, all the other players who weren't lucky enough to be on the field but were a massive part of what we did. It was about the support team, the coaches, the, the medics, the you know, just everyone involved because it really was a huge effort. And just for that moment on, our lives individually and collectively were never going to be the same again. And just to have that moment as a group and know that we'd achieved something was pretty special. I think we, we recognise that England aren't supposed to win finals, you know, that we've won one in football in 1966, you know, so I think we recognised that we had an opportunity to change that and, and write our names in history. But obviously, if we hadn't, you know, I'd probably be in jail now, serving a life sentence for murdering the referee. You know? Reunited on TalkSport is a tongue-tied media production for TalkSport. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.